welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we have our first four-way discussion on the topic of safeguarding. Safeguarding has been in the news a lot here in the UK recently, and we've seen how charities have been called to account for failings in safeguarding, the impact that this has had on them, the work they do, and the sector as a whole. In this episode, we talk with our panel about why it is so vital for every charity to have a safeguarding policy and why everyone working in the third sector should know about safeguarding. So without further ado, here are James, Kay, Jude and I talking about safeguarding. Right, hello and welcome to Charity Chats. I'm here with Jude McKee, Kay Dora and James Atkins, who's been on the show before, and we're talking today about safeguarding. So, Jude, tell me a little bit about your background. Um, I currently am a director of operations for a small charity in Marlebone called WLM, Mm -hmm. and I'm also the safeguarding lead for the services that we run. We have six services at the moment. Nice. Um, And so I'm quite involved in all aspects of safeguarding for the organisation. So that's why I was quite interested to come along when invited by James. Fantastic. Okay, how, how about you? What's your background? Um, well, I've worked in charities for about 14 years now, mm-hmm. um, but specifically working with young people for the past four years. And at the moment I work in the youth services uh, for a housing association. And so by default you end up with quite a lot of safeguarding issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also worked in various... Uh, youth centres and youth organisations, um, which have given me obviously quite a lot of interesting, sometimes, insight into safeguarding. Fantastic. And James, our listeners, if they've listened to other shows, they'll know you They should well. know me, yes. But, but your, what's your background? <laughs> so I've got about 11 years of experience in the charity sector, um, mainly working around volunteer management and also training. So doing a lot of training around safeguarding for volunteers and staff. Um, also as well, I was chair of a board of Volunteer Centre Lewisham. Okay. So what, when we're talking about safeguarding, a lot of listeners might not know what we mean. Jude, how would you define safeguarding? Uh, well, we, we, we work with vulnerable adults, but our policies cover both um, children and vulnerable adults. Nice. And I think the definition would be around people who um, would be subject to neglect or abuse, mm-hmm. potentially, due to um, certain vulnerabilities that they have. Nice. Um, and But then also, conversely, that we're also dealing with people who might not have those vulnerabilities but are also subject to neglect and abuse so they might have capacity or they might be functioning okay on you know within we do have a care home but there we have other services where people don't have such vulnerabilities Um, and then it's about how you manage the the safeguarding of those people when when you can't raise it to a local authority or, or another body and is that the same for UK as well? Is it a similar? Um, it's slightly different because uh, in our youth services we have some who are residents and then we work with young people across London. So sometimes it's stuff like being aware of maybe signs of things like self-harm, mm-hmm. mental health issues. Um, you, know, you could meet somebody for what could be you know, just an arts workshop and actually you have a conversation and then disclosure happens mm. or something triggers your thought, mm, 
we need to look into this, we need to, we can't just let that kid walk off and go, oh, that was a sad conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's issues like that, and then there's also thinking about things like the way you look after your records and your information, um, because it's not only safeguarding as in young people perhaps telling you about something that's going on in their life, it's how you're managing your staff and your volunteers mm. to ensure that the aren't ways for people to cross boundaries, um, often accidentally, or people who perhaps could be using this as a way to access young people. So that's kind of like the safeguarding that probably I have the most experience of. Well, I suppose charities do typically come into Char- contact with, with that, children, young people. Yes, all the time, and, and this is a valid point because I worked in an organisation, I will not say its name, but where I had to bring in safeguarding into mm-hmm. the organisation because they felt it wasn't, it wasn't for them. They didn't work with vulnerable people. Sure. And this was actually an organisation that worked with some people with a life-limiting condition. Mm-hmm. And I said, quite obviously, there probably is some safeguarding around that. And I think there is sometimes a bit of a, you know, confusion, I'd say, in the sector mm-hmm. on actually what is safeguarding. And actually, safeguarding is not is for everyone. It's not necessarily just always the people on the front line. Mm-hmm. It can also be that finance worker. It can also be that media worker that might be coming into contact with someone. Sure. And I suppose a lot of charities, I mean, my background is largely in events and fundraising events and things like that but going to an event as a charity having a charity stand you know there are families there there are young people with children there so you know there is always that chance isn't there that you'll you'll come into contact with somebody as you say that maybe makes a disclosure or for whatever reason kind of sets off the radar that maybe there's a safeguarding issue and also picking up what you're saying but um before I retrained to work with young people, I worked in charity communica- communications. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on what your role was in that, you had to have a DBS check because you were managing um, information on, often on children and families. And again, it might not be obvious to an organisation like the one James was referring to that actually that gives me access. Mm-hmm. And that could be proper, very problematic if I am somebody who that would not be safe with. No, and that was there was some... Um, concerns that I brought up to the organisation was specifically around the media team because they were, out, were going into people's homes unattended with no DBS. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nine-year-olds actually were, you know, in, in their bed, fatally ill, basically, and there was no checks and balances. There was no training around that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that anyone going into that situation would be doing that, but it's important for them to obviously um, be aware of safeguarding and nothing else. So. Is it more vital that charities above any other organisation are mindful of safeguarding and have policies in place to protect safeguarding, do you think? I suppose it comes from the, the ethos of what charity is there to do. So usually whatever organisation it is, you're helping support either children or adults or some sort of cause um, that is for the betterment of society. I mean, that's the original ethos hundreds of years ago. So actually I think, you know, charities should be, yeah, well and above any organisation um, around safeguarding. And I think that's where sometimes organizations could actually learn a bit better really because mm. certainly from my perspective things that you know there's usually always a policy and that's always usually in place and there's always usually some people that know about safeguarding but it's about that sort of wide understanding across the business I think sometimes can be quite lost and in not talking about specific organizations but you know what is the training around safeguarding what is actually the clear process for everybody to understand um, because I think that's where sometimes it gets a bit murky and it gets a bit lost, especially as I've seen it in a lot of organisations where safeguarding is tacked onto facilities job or it's tacked onto somebody's role in governance. Mm. It's not about looking, there can be somebody who's the safeguarding lead, and I think that's totally important, but actually that also that everyone in the organisation has a, a basic understanding and knows what to do in a situation. I kind of think it should be 
a part of your induction and not yes. just a policy to read. Sure. Or even if some, you know, I've been in some organisations where you have, you know, read about and you sign them, but that doesn't mean I understand or feel comfortable or confident. Um, and I think it's interesting both what you're saying about uh, people in roles where maybe it wouldn't be obvious. I think sometimes it's useful for them to understand it and also have additional learning. Mm -hmm. But also I think sometimes um, I've often had multiple roles where I've been readjusting to a career with young people and there's been quite a difference in organisations to how they do their safeguarding and their training between signing a policy and having some safeguarding training at some point along the line to people who in the first two weeks you will do their safeguarding for that organisation and you will complete it and it is face to face training. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So very, very different. Yeah. But all of my roles have been with young people. Sure. So that I think is quite interesting as an indication yeah. of there's kind of multiple issues going on. So there's people who perhaps don't have the most obvious contact and people like me who are going to have direct contact having very different levels of training with charities that specialise apparently in working with young people. Would we agree that safeguarding should be something that every charity at least has um, a policy on? Definitely. But I think, I think sometimes um, charities are picking up issues that are gaps. So you're, you're just, you're initially at least, you, you might be meeting a need and mm. sort of hitting the ground running and the focus might not be on procedural issues like safeguarding. Yeah. Um, and it's about the professionalisation of the sector mm. and both short-term and long-term players, big or small, really taking responsibility for safeguarding. Sure. Um, yeah, putting in training, putting in DBS procedures, knowing the law, knowing mm. um, what trustees are responsible for. The charity, the, you know, the charity's trustees are very sort of similar in this as well because yeah. they're leading the, the rest of the charity and expectations around management of safeguarding. Mm. So I think it's um, the sector's changed a lot since I've been working in it over the past 15 years, yeah. and I think it's continuing to professionalise and especially with vulnerable adults because I think with children there is a lot more onus on things like this and it's a, it's a bit more obvious that if you're mm. with a child you couldn't loan work or you there might be safeguarding issues but with vulnerable adults I don't think there has been such an emphasis mm. on on that and mm. also and, and in working with vulnerable adults you can still come in contact with or, or you know or have a, a, an exposure to um, a story about a vulnerable child so you do need the two policies not just Oh, well, we're dealing with vulnerable adults, so that's all we're going to concentrate Absolutely. on. Yeah. So, so um, I think that's just been in development over, over the sector, really. And also just around the reporting system, so making sure that actually it's a safe space for people to actually make these you know, reports or allegations, especially for when it's against senior managers. Yes. Because certainly in my L&D role, I have supported people where actually they have got some major concerns about senior management and how they're delivering on safeguarding. Mm. but. The culture, um, certainly, of, and this is only some organisations that I've been aware of, is they don't feel confident to do that. Sure. And HR maybe have just said, no, come on now, because that's a senior manager that we can't be doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something as well that hopefully, as the sector, like you're saying, is professionalising, actually those things start happening less and less mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it's not good for the organisation or the people they're working with, really. There is that, there's that other level, isn't there, of obviously protecting the young people and the vulnerable adults that you're working with, but also protecting staff as well and, and making them feel prepared and not having a situation where 
members of staff are in a situation where they've no idea what the uh, you know what, what they should be doing and, and how they should be dealing with it because of course that could lead to a great deal of stress and all sorts of other implications and that's even from my experience of being a trustee that actually you were saying about the trustee board most trustee boards have no understanding at all mm. around safeguarding and their responsibilities therein to yeah. the organization so that is another piece of work I think is really important is to make sure the trustees are understanding that and their obligations yeah. Well, um, one organisation I've worked at um, specialises in young people um, and we took some young people to the trustee board, they were actually on the board, which I think is really great. Um, the way that they manage part of their safeguarding for their uh, kind of youth advisory board, which I used to run in that charity, was that um, myself and my colleague around the board, you always had to copy each other into all emails to all the children, they were mainly under 18, mm -hmm. um, on copy it into the main inbox. Um, we only could contact them on the work mobile, you could not delete any messages, all those kind of things. So okay. that, that, you know, you could, there was always a record of what yeah. was going on. And there had been, I think, everyone on the trustee panel had a DPS check, um, and there had been some safeguarding training. But it was interesting to me that um, we were talking at this uh, board meeting, about how to include young people more thoroughly in, um, in the boards and in decisions made by the charity. And one of the trustee uh, members was like, well, what would I do if they phoned me at the weekend? I was like, you don't answer your phone. Right. You okay. do not answer your phone. This yeah. is not your work phone. Don't know why they'd have your number in the first place. Yeah. You don't answer your phone. <laughs> what if they're in trouble? What are you going to do about it? Sure. <laughs> um, you know, and was like, well, what if we're kind of like, you know, I think I can help out develop a relationship. It was like, great, you meet them at the office. Mm -hmm. You you have a member of the, young, of the young people's team is there and aware. You know, they're 14, they're 15. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm saying that in the end, a DBS check is worth of what it's written on that day. Yeah. And also just means you haven't been caught to be, sure. to be very blunt about sure, it. That's sure. all it means. It's very important mm -hmm. to have it as part of your process. But you have to have checks and balances, like the kind of things we were putting in. You can't be contacting the children outside of that because mm. that's the safeguarding is there for a reason. Mm. Um, but in the end, I was kind of saying, well, you know, I could be a bad lot and James could be fine. Um, and if the young people have a, a set uh, procedure whereby they know that this is how me and James always contact them, then I go off piste. Mm. It's much more obvious that I might be dodgy. Whereas right. if we're willingly contacting children and we don't have a process, yeah. how are they supposed to think, hmm, why is Kay doing this? Absolutely. You know, and that's one of the reasons why you have these processes. Uh, even if it sounds a little bit over the top that we're constantly copying each other in and we're going mm. And you know, and obviously if people really want to, they'll find ways around it, you just make it a lot harder. Mm. Um, but it was interesting to me that this person was a trustee and I presume had had some training. Yeah. And still was just like, well, you know, like, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't, give you can't. This is all to protect you. Because yeah. it's all fine until there's a problem. It's, isn't exactly. It? And, and then the, the risk with yeah. this is, is huge, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, it can be things we're talking about, obviously, about the potential for sexual abuse, but mm. we're also talking about the potential for somebody perhaps with mental health issues. Yeah. We did have children with that on that panel who then um, start to rely on you. What if you can't answer the phone and they're in crisis? Well, mm. Because you are not a crisis mm. helpline. Um, so you think you're helping, but you could be setting them up to fall. Um, and there's all these other knock-ons, I think. Um, people are like, well, I wouldn't hurt them. It's like, well, it's not about that. Yeah. It's not that we're presuming that you're all terrible. It's mm. that you could also be setting up dependency. And um, so I think safeguarding, a bit like what you're saying about vulnerable adults, is wider than people's immediate presumption that we're trying to avoid another so-on. You know? mm. um, that actually there's all these other 
elements as well. It's definitely a cultural issue, as James said earlier, I think around, and it is around, I suppose, the, the initial mission of the charity is to meet the need and sometimes, but, the, but like you said, it needs to be in a boundaried way and there needs to be procedures and it mm. needs to be an empowerment model, not a needs model. And you need to have that in mind when you're working with people and, and it needs to be really clear. So I think policies are really important, but procedures are even more important. Mm. And then also training, because obviously the Mental Capacity Act is, is key to this as well about assessing capacity in people. Sure. Um, domestic abuse is key in this, being able to recognise domestic abuse, hoarding, there are so many different elements to um, safeguarding um, and, and that's about training teams to recognise it and to, and to build trust to ask the right types of questions. So you need quite an open and transparent culture to, to enable that in the first place. If it's quite closed, um, then people might not disclose um, whatever happens to them. So it's a lot wider than, you know, you start with your policy, but really that's the end, end game, really, apart from the, the trust, what the trustees are doing on top. But it's really how you're operating on a day-to-day -day basis that's a key to this, I think. And I think certainly that the training is, yeah, it's engaging, it's robust, but it's also suitable to the organisations themselves. Mm -hmm. So I've seen it a lot where it's actually like the most boring thing you've ever sat through in your entire adult life, and people just disengage. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking at someone about safeguarding for three hours, after about five minutes they've lost the will to live and they're not engaging with what they're saying and like you said it's that open and transparency and I think personally that comes from the top down that actually people are talking about that it isn't just a side note safeguarding that it's just intrinsic to what an organisation does yeah. um, then that's where I think it can make a big difference and also that that training is redone so you know that actually even if you have worked in the sector for many many years that actually you are having a refresher in that environment just to make sure that you're up to date in changes in legislation or things that are going on. some of the charities I've worked for in the past and some of the organisations I've volunteered for, you know, safeguarding wasn't a word that was used often and whether that suggested there was a lack of cover I'm not sure but certainly it wasn't in our lexicon on a regular basis and I wonder whether that in itself is a bit of a warning. I mean, does safeguarding need to be discussed more internally among staff do you think in organisations? Is that Totally yeah. and it's... Um, I saw it actually when it was the only place I vol volunteered in lots of organisations, the only organisation that was very hot on this was somebody that actually used to work in children and young families and did do safeguarding sure. um, and so would talk to us about the warning signs actually. Because mm -hmm. it went back to your point actually around the DBS and I think that sometimes being an organisation can be a trap that you fall into, yeah. is that a lot of organisations say, oh we've done our DBS so they're fine mm -hmm. and actually the two instances of the worst safeguarding breaches I saw, one was a group where they were starting to sexually groom the older adults they were working with and there was another one he'd actually been abusive to other partners but we that was never going to show on their DBS and it was actually about the organizations being robust to see that that was happening right. and to take the appropriate action as well because yeah. I think that links into it as well around um, people's faith in an organization you know I don't think people should these things do happen people there are most people I'd say 99% are actually there to do a good cause. There are some that are servicing their own needs. Mm. And I think it's about actually for an organisation, if these things do happen, like you said, there's a procedure, there's a structure, and some action is taken. Mm. Um, because I think just not even for the organisation or the people you're working with, but also the wider public themselves want to kind of see that actually some action has been taken when the instances you know, have been breached. So internally within organisations, we'll see there's, the, there's a safeguarding policy, but what kind of controls 
and devices should there be in an organisation to help support a safeguarding policy? Things like whistleblowing policies and things yeah. like this. Loan working policies as well. Um, uh, whistleblowing and and I think going back to the service, I hate the word service <laughs> user involvement, but it's about you know allowing people a space. And, and also including them in knowing what safeguarding issues are. Because mm. you might not feel that you're being financially abused if somebody mm. steals mm. your yeah. £10 from you or something. You might yeah. think that you might be quite used to that kind of behaviour. Um, but talking it through with a member of staff could, could make you think otherwise. And, and it's the same with lots of different issues around domestic abuse. I used to work in, the, in, a, in a women's hostel and it was, it was just quite interesting that the perceptions of, of what abuse actually is and we can, we can take it for granted well of course you know that's abuse but but some people don't sure. so so there's so there's that side of it there's the educational side of it and including people in their own care mm-hmm. and then also the mechanisms to feedback as well because if if you don't have a good complaints procedure and it's not robust and things aren't followed up people lose faith and they won't necessarily raise things so it's how things are followed up and how transparent you are as a team um, and, how, and how people are included in that process. I think that's really key mm. as well. So um, I think there are just so many levels to this. Absolutely. That, that go, yeah, go, as we've said, go far beyond policy. And, mm. and it's also how the staff are supported because if you're hearing quite traumatic things, if somebody discloses something to you, sometimes there can be quite a bit of panic if you don't know what to do. Yeah. you're left holding that and you might not know what to do so it's really to have clear procedures and a clear line of management mm-hmm. to know yes. who to go to yeah. is, is key because, because then you can support the staff with the disclosure as well as the resident If something happens within a charity a safeguarding issue um, with its disclosure or something like that if a charity doesn't have a safeguarding policy what should it do? What, if, somebody, if somebody listening to this was in, is in a position where they've, suddenly someone's disclosed to them, whether it's at a challenge event they've been part of or you know, as part of the service, and they don't know what the safeguarding policy is, what are the steps they should be taking? Right, so in itself, I mean, if an organisation doesn't have one, I think, you know, first step is you need to write one, and there are so many available online. I'm not saying that you copy and paste it, but actually just to get an understanding of it. Um, I think as well, it depends on the size of your organisation, mm-hmm. um, because certainly, if obviously, if you have an organisation of 200, 300, then like you said, there'll be a clear management structure. If it's a smaller organisation, then again, that's about, um, you know, looking online and seeing, obviously, what reporting things you need to take down mm-hmm. um, and actually engage with the staff members around that but I think even for whatever size of how big or small your organization you can have a procedure and a structure of this and I, I would say I mean every charity I've ever worked in big or small has some sort of procedure or structure around this it's again just trying to find out what that is mm-hmm. so again that's relaying, relaying with your colleagues certainly for a big event to find out because there might be other people that have more experience in this area that you can engage with as well How should charities deal with reporting to regulators on any safeguarding issues that come up? I suppose this should be part of their procedure anyway. Like with many things, um, and I don't think this is a specific strategy, I think this is possibly part of the human condition, is people's concern about what that means mm-hmm. for reputation or if we admit that it's happened rather than try and deal with it and 
you know, and they do want to deal with it, but they want to do it quietly, and Absolutely. which creates some of the scandals that we have seen. Yeah. Um, and I think it's tied in with what you're saying about having an open culture, like being open that these things will happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, boundaries will be crossed. Sometimes you might have someone predatory. Yeah. You know, they're kind of like all mistakes or gaps where something could have happened. Mm. Um, and the way to deal with that is to look at how you stop it happening again. Absolutely. And, and the only way you can do that is having a very open learning approach, mm. Mm. Um, which I think they try to do often in social services around uh, various ma major incidents. But obviously, as we know, sometimes the media goes after that as a pack of wolves rather of than a way of you have to do this to learn. Yeah. And if you're going to learn, then you have to be open. Mm. Um, and you have to say, well, this happened and this happened. Um, and look at how you can fix that. Yeah. And yes, there will be situations in which that means gross misconduct and loss of a job. Mm -hmm. But I think many times what it means is people looking at what is their training, why was there a gap, who was left often maybe frontline or junior staff dealing with things where they were not supported. Um, and there should be, I think, a confidence in saying, we did this, it wasn't right, we've mm -hmm. learned from this, this is what we're now applying, we expect it to be working better and being able to tell regulatory bodies like the Charity Commission about that. And what I was reading recently in their website seems to me very much that they want people to be able to do that. Yes. Um, now, there's a problem there, I think, with people's concern about closing ranks within an organisation and not wanting the reputation damaged and fear of what the media attacks could be. Mm. Whereas I think if we were all a bit more confident and stood our ground around this is how you learn yeah. and this is how you improve, then I think that would help everybody. And it's being empowered to kind of sometimes take negative feedback. I mean, from the charity commission, from the public yeah. themselves, you know, sometimes we want charities, obviously, we want everyone to take in view, we want to, people to give us money, we want to do good for our community, but sometimes things go wrong. And actually, yeah. I think, like you just said, being open and transparent to actually admitting what's going on yeah. and what you've learned from that, I think certainly as well, something that I'd personally like to see, you know, if, say for example, it's an employee that's been carrying out some form of review, that actually they are not then given a reference to another organisation mm. to carry on this work. Right. Um, you know, and just from a legal stop standpoint, you can, you know, you're not allowed to give a bad reference, but you can actually just refuse to give one. Mm. And I think that's the one thing I'd like to see going forward more because that's something I've not seen this all with, with abuse, but just sometimes with major infractions, when, when people have done something massively wrong, instead of actually like dealing with it, they're like, okay, you can go off now to another organisation where you're not solving the problem mm. for the wider sector, mm. really. And that's something I'd like to see more. And also, and that comes from actually from a leadership being strong and empowered to make those choices, mm. and that sometimes it's, you know, it's difficult. And I think there, there is a social responsibility that all charities have, as, as you, you mentioned, Kay, with um, obviously there have been reports of charities that have had problems with safeguarding and those reports have then obviously been publicised. And I wonder how many, I mean obviously this, this episode, you know, full disclosure, this episode is a result of those reports. So if other charities have since taken on safeguarding where well, they didn't have it before because of these reports, then in some way this, these terrible things that have happened have at least started a, maybe a move for other charities to make sure that, that doesn't happen within their organisation. I do know of a very small charity who's actually working internationally, um, women and women tied by volunteers, who have put in their first safeguarding policy. Really? Because of Off this. the back of... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So to, to then... for. A charity to have had a safeguarding issue for it not to talk to the charity commission, not only does it do a disservice to their supporters and their beneficiaries, but also it's a wider impact. We, we did mention 
here. And obviously, I think for a lot of charities, this worry about the press, as you said, going after them if they, if they talk about safeguarding issues they've had. If a charity decides to talk to the press about a safeguarding issue they've had, what advice would we give to a charity in terms of how to approach that? This is from my perspective, I suppose, it's around um, showing what's happened, showing actually what's been done to obviously protect the victims in the organisation, what's been learnt from it, and actually that there are some just three clear messages that are said by everyone in the organisation, you know. So this is from my perspective, certainly from comms. People can get murky and say the wrong thing and be misquoted, and I think that's where situations you can go down where there can be a media firestorm. That everyone is fully prepped in the business of what to say and what not to say in that situation. Um, and like I say, like no, don't sugarcoat it, don't gloss over the situation, because actually if they can spot something might be slightly more wrong, especially over the last year or so, they're going to just keep on digging and digging to find out more. So to be as open as you can, and like I said earlier, um, it might not be pleasant. And I think, you know, that sometimes, you know, as a sector, we're going to have to deal with that sometimes, that actually the media and the public, and I know that's happened before in organisations, but that we have to be open that people might not say nice things to us and to be okay with that. But again, if we're learning and we're growing from that, then all the better, really. I think it's interesting what you're saying about not sugarcoating. I think it's very important mm. that you, when you first go public with it and you're talking about it, you make it an actual apology mm, yes. and you don't fudge your apologies because, you know, we're all too sharp for that. Mm. And people will understandably and correctly, I think, jump on you for that. Like, be upfront. Mm. Say what you got wrong. Yeah. Say what you were doing about it. I mean, in some ways I understand why charities are worried about this. There's, particularly for, I think, international development charities, there's a strong push in the press and from certain politicians that this is a mistake anyway for mm. Britain and we shouldn't spend British money on this. Mm. And people are frightened of the effects this will have on their fundraising, but they're two separate issues. And I think you have to stand your ground on what you are doing about safeguarding as one th particular thing and deal with the fundraising, mm. which is already a, a burning issue really. Yeah. That isn't, that's not been caused by the fact that you talked about safeguarding openly. Um, yeah. And try and separate the two things out and also don't think you're too big to fail. Mm. And that charities, all of us should really be here in order to eventually be out of existence because things have been improved. Yeah. And I just think that that's something that we need to remember that kind of like particularly when places get very big is that actually, yes, you might be doing amazing work when it is done well, but that does not justify pushing things that you've got wrong under the carpet. But it's, I think it's also about, we talked about a bit earlier about professionalisation, but it's about HR practices as well. Mm. I, think, I think in the sector sometimes they're not quite as robust as they should be. Um, and things aren't managed and nipped in the bud earlier enough with certain behaviours mm -hmm. and yeah. things aren't, as you said, if things are disclosed, they need to be dealt with properly through, mm. through a proper HR system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's in development in a lot of organisations, but it has been lacking. Um, I think partly it is due to austerity, there is a lot less money. Mm. Um, so to have a big HR team, you know, sometimes it's somebody in the charity who might be having a dual role, doing the HR and doing a reception role, or they might not be able to afford um, a consultancy or legal fees. So it's about, I think, charities knowing that you've got a responsibility there. So, yeah. so you need to be able to afford to run safely and properly. Mm -hmm. and, and what you need to be able to do that, 
And sadly, because of the um, cultural austerity we're in, I think there have been a lot of cuts. Mm. And then culturally, people aren't, um, don't have the teams there to be looking at these HR issues in the way that they need to be looked at. Um, then if you are investigated by the media and you haven't done, you haven't followed those basic procedures, you are going to be open for the things that, that we've seen in the press recently, Absolutely. no matter how big you are. Yeah. You're, you, because because people expect you to be operating in in a in a in a compliant way with the law. And the, those those things you mentioned, Jude, are they in terms of the behaviours that the kind of HR might pick up? Are they things like harassment and it's just? I think just anything that uh, it's about a cultural cultural issue. I think because right. it can these things can start out quite small because especially mm-hmm. with predatory behaviour, you can go into an organisation and you're not you're going to be testing the water for a while. You're okay. not going to go straight in and probably so know, things like the yeah. non adherence to yeah. the policy that you were talking about, Kay. Potentially, if there's a policy in the somebody's not yeah, adhering to it that, it could start with things like you know it could be banter or flirting yeah. or joking around and yeah, boundaries. You know, and again, boundaries. like and. Those boundaries mm. and this is the thing where everyone feels like like you said earlier boundaries can so easily just be murked and crossed mm. over mm. Um, and people are just not realizing actually sometimes the things that they're doing and then it escalates even further well, I think in, as well as kind of like people often boundaries might be things like flirtatious behavior mm. with vulnerable people it might be being a listening ear mm. it might be developing a friendship you know okay. that you know sometimes these are very isolated lonely people nobody bothers to listen to them mm. and that's a great way to develop trust right. um, and it's not as obvious. Mm. Uh, so this is why you have to like things like the loan working and why you ha- should have proper debriefs so you know who's speaking to who and learning about who. And um, Somebody I know works for a um, hostel for very vulnerable adults who are alcohol dependent, um, who are basically fa- um, facing homelessness. Mm. And there have been some major safeguarding issues in that particular place, right. um, including somebody who had to be had to be leave immediately because of forming a relationship with a vulnerable client, and as much as obviously it is that perpetrator's fault that they did that, mm-hmm. the reason why this was able to happen and well with quite a few other boundary slips is poor management. Right. You have if you hold all the boundary slips, mm-hmm. the bigger ones are harder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think again, I think it's management. I think. There is a problem with austerity and people being that we can't afford it, we can't afford it, but you might have to do less and but do what you do well. There are possibilities with, um, so Judy mentioned HR, you know, and, and, and of course there are small charities out there that might be one or two people operations, you know, and they don't have a HR department. But there's, there's guidance out there. But also, in previous episodes, we have talked about the benefit of organisations, charities, especially non-profits, going to companies and asking for that gifting kind support from, can their HR company, you and know, that's, uh, and I've, done that. I've done that, actually, I've got Marks and Spencers to come into one organisation and actually review all our policies, and they, you know, right. were very high up and understood it better, and actually, and that is something from a CSR point of view, I think, is actually a really amazing tool that you can offer a corporate, because it's not necessarily fishing trolleys out of a river, which is very important, but um, it's actually doing things that actually will help the organisation long term, yeah. and not even just the corporate world, you know, like I was saying, there are tools and resources, um, most London boroughs, for instance, will have a resource centre of local community organisations that you can engage with. Mm. And I've done that for years, where actually I've gone to go meet certain people to learn, because I didn't necessarily know a lot about safeguarding, to learn from them, they've learned from me. And that's what I'd actively encourage you to do, because even if you are one or two people, 
it might be more work in the beginning, but I think as we were saying, if something goes wrong, mm. it's going to be a whole lot worse for you as an organisation, even if you are just two people. Yeah, and also because you raise it to your borough now, it used to be Pan London, but now it's you raise it to your yeah. borough, you, you, there is free training in the borough, yes. either e-learning or you can go in person to training groups and you'll be with other people who work in the sector or work with vulnerable adults or children. Yeah. Um, they also have their own policies that will be on their websites and, and that's who you'd be raising the issue to anyway mm. um, in, if, if it was significant enough. So you need, your staff need to know who to contact mm. in, in, in the instance it does need to be raised to the local authority. Sure. So, so it, everybody should be versed in their procedure. Um, and had, had and go on their training, which is free. Yeah. So even if you can't afford anything else, that'd be a good first step for people. Um, depending what sector you, what kind of third sector charity you are. So for example, Homeless Link have quite a lot of um, freebies online um, around these issues that sure. you can look up. And there's NIACE and other people. Yeah. There's um, SCIE who also do safeguarding um, consultancy and have a good website. So. There, there are free things where you can start looking in, into things yeah. um, and you can also buddy up with other organisations who are maybe a bit further on than you and they will normally share resources as well. So if anybody's worried or, or is a bit strapped for cash, which yeah. wouldn't be a surprise, then there are, <laughs> there are some other options out there. Yeah. Fantastic. And that's, that's UK wide. And, and for our international listeners, which we have quite a few, then I suppose the advice there is to talk to your your regulator um, and, and look online or failing that you can always call contact us and we'll, we'll try and signpost you. Jude McKee, Kay Dora, James Atkins, thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. So there we go dear listener, great discussion with James, Kay and Jude, thank you to all of them for contributing to this uh, fantastic episode. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to their discussion and hope that you did too. It's clear that safeguarding is an absolutely vital component of every charity's remit and this should be reflected in the governance processes and culture of the organisation. If you're grappling with safeguarding issues or feel that you need help with safeguarding at your charity, please do check our website source links for help and advice or do get in touch with us through the website and we will do our very best to answer your questions or find someone who can. More and more of you are reaching out to us with feedback, show ideas and offers of assistance. We really appreciate it. As a group of volunteers ourselves, we're very grateful for any support that you can provide, including ideas for how we can make the show better. So please do reach out through our website or social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you, dear listener, for listening to the show. It's now left for me to thank our generous sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axumit for beautiful website design, RR Yard Photography, who have provided some lovely pro bono photos on our website. And you can see all of this charitychat.org.uk. And of course, the one and only Forrester Fools, who have been playing throughout the show and are playing us out right now. That's it for this episode. All the best. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye bye.